Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius, host of Confronting the Madness. Joining me today is Dr. Alina Turner, co-founder of Helpseeker Technologies. Helpseeker Technologies is a social technology B Corp founded in Calgary, Alberta in 2018. Helpseeker develops and services a suite of data-driven digital solutions to support social sector decision makers, service providers, and community members looking for help. Alina's background is as a social scientist with a specialization in systems planning and integration, and also as a funder and social policy expert. She's had the opportunity to work in system change efforts on homelessness and affordable housing, domestic violence, poverty, mental health, and addictions throughout her career. Alina is currently a fellow at the School of Public Policy, University of Calgary, and also serves on the board of directors for Away Home Canada and also the Alberta Rural Development Rural Advisory Board on Housing and Homelessness. Alina and I had a wide-ranging discussion, which mainly centered around the challenges and opportunities surrounding disruption and transformation in the health and social services sectors. And now I bring to you Dr. Alina Turner. Uh, Dr. Alina Turner, uh, president and co-founder of Help Seeker, amongst other things. Uh, welcome to Confronting the Madness. So happy to have you on the podcast today. So happy to be here slash nervous slash excited. So yeah. <laughs> well, ready for a fun conversation. Yeah. Um, and just by way of background, as I was telling you offline, um, I've been following your work um, for quite some time and had uh, City of Edmonton Chief of Police Dale McPhee on to talk about a lot of things, but we did talk in particular about the social impact audit report that you had help seeker had um, completed at the request of the Edmonton Police Service. And so I thought it'd be really interesting to talk with you um, about that report and more broadly about the work you're doing with help, help seeker. And um, but before we do that, just really curious about your own life journey. Um, you have a PhD in sociocultural anthropology. Um, you worked with the Calgary Homeless Foundation. Um, but but maybe just walk me through, if you don't mind, um, how you came to the sector and then how you became um, an, an entrepreneur of sorts in the social sector, which is I think really, really cool and um, something that is going to become more and more of a, a needed um, uh, enterprise of sorts. Yeah. 
Okay, well, I'll try to uh, to be brief because I, I tend to get caught in my in weaving my own life story sometimes, uh, as as my family tells me. Um, but the the gist is, I I was born and raised in Romania during communism, so left Romania with my immediate family after 1989, after the the revolution, and ended up in Germany in a refugee. Um, camp is what they were called. What it was, it was an abandoned cloister, but it was called a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. Lived there for a few years and then ended up being lucky enough to be accepted to Canada as as the refugee, sponsored refugee program. Uh, From there, just, you know, the the same old immigrant story where you bounce, bounce around because my dad was a foreign trained professional, so didn't quite translate into Canadian uh, work experience, of course, and Prince George, uh, Northern BC. So Mm -hmm. I did my high school there, met my now husband, Travis in Prince George in in high school. So we've uh, high school sweethearts, high school sweethearts. And we're, you know, you talked about, uh, kind of the the social entrepreneurial story. He he and I are also business partners. Um, right. He's, so, yeah. the co- he's the co-founder he's with the you co-founder. with Seeker, right? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So um, he ended up going into education at U of A. I ended up going into anthropology. It just made sense to me. I had bounced around different cultures and it's just, it was a discipline that helped explain what I was seeing. I see. And that was why, you know, I ended up with a degree that, you know, I, my mom still doesn't understand what I do or <laughs> reason, <laughs> so, right. but I study culture. I study, I study um, power relations. I study migration. I study, um, you know, how social structures get formed, dis, disformed and reformed. So all of that stuff is really, really interesting to me. And, and like I said, it being from a country that has underwent such a deep, deep change in 1989, you see something that is, seems so unmutable and then it changes overnight. So you realize like every, anything is possible, actually. There's mm-hmm. nothing set in stone. Everything is constructed. So therefore, it can be known and it can be understood, or, or at least it, it merits an exploration. Right. So that's how I ended up in this sector too, because I, I had those interests obviously from, from mm-hmm. the work, but I also had to, you know, live and pay bills and have you know, pay rent and things like that. Um, the reason I ended up in, in the social sector is, um, it was at the Boyle Street Co-op, which some of your listeners would know because mm-hmm. it's an, an organization, uh, and they work with, uh, street involved populations, at least that, that was the, the term back then. And I was hired to do a street culture ethnography back in the nineties. Is, is this after your undergraduate degree or after your master's or what, at what point are we? It was during here? my under, it was actually during my undergrad. Oh, during your undergrad. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, I walked in there, I think I was 19 and they had a step position that they were advertising and I walked into <laughs> into the uh, CEO at the time was Hope Hunter. I don't know if people still remember Hope, but she was, she was really badass and cool, cool lady to, uh, mm-hmm. to have a first job with. So that's how I ended up getting into this, this world since that time as a staff. 
But the reason I think she gave me the job is because she took me on a tour of the drop-in part of the Boyle Street Club. And I was like, oh yeah, this, this, is, this is actually my life. And um, it wasn't, I think it was the, you know, is this this little girl from like a middle-class neighborhood and I, we weren't. So um, we had lived through some pretty crappy stuff. Um, mm -hmm. My brother was, and I think I'm very open about this stuff because I think it, it really matters to mm -hmm. To understand where where people come to this work from so my brother was um a gang member he passed away last year we have been through this stuff up and down i was part of the child welfare system it's this stuff is not new to me and i and i think that when when she saw that she was like oh maybe there's more to it than than her uh, her bad dye job, blonde street blonde <laughs> dye job in, in university. So she gave me a shot and uh, I was there for three years, for three um, wow. yeah, summers mm -hmm. uh, during those, those four months in between. And then in the, in the meantime, uh, during my other time, I worked at Changing Together, a center for immigrant women. So I, I did that during, to, you know, during the school year. And then I did Boyle Street during the summer full time. And it was just street outreach work. Um, yeah, so that's that was my first foray into that space. And then I, as as you, people discover you're good at writing and mm -hmm. stats and data, they start putting you in these rooms that you probably shouldn't be in as a 20 year old, but mm -hmm. you're starting to get to know, okay, this this is how this game works. And, it, and there's mm -hmm. so much politics in, in the social space. Mm -hmm. You would for sure know, um, but I, I like the politics because I I like to understand the the microcosm of power and so right yeah me too it got interesting right it gets interesting yeah. to figure out like oh, okay this is this is what policy is oh this is how policy gets made oh it's not the textbook at all it's mm -hmm. <laughs> sometimes it's there is no logic <laughs> or, yes, or wow you yes. want to know all these numbers but you know half of them are you know somebody cooks up somewhere and there's yeah. not really a relationship to how people experience this world so it's all, all that stuff is really interesting to me. And I think that's a, a thread through my career. But, so, yeah. so when did you, you were data and writing was a strength of yours early, early on just naturally, or how did you come? Um, oh, how did I come to it? I probably was like the worst writer ever. My uh, Travis would tell me like, your papers were 20 page paragraphs. So I don't know if it came naturally, but I right. kept trying, I kept trying, mm -hmm. you know, they, they give you those little, but anyways, I, I got the hang of it during those opportunities. I had those opportunities given to me. Um, and so uh, I got into, into the policy world um, on the immigration side, because I, I wrote a bunch of policy positions for, um, I, for, I really forget what the name of it is now because they've changed mm -hmm. their name, but it was a, an ethnocultural coalition um, around okay. policy change in, in Edmonton, and, and I believe mm -hmm. they're still around, and wrote their policy statements on equity and, and mental health and health and uh, employment, education, all this stuff. And they're like, oh, I think she, you know, you've got an act for this. And I really liked it. And so um, I had moved to Calgary because Travis got a job being a teacher. So he's graduated uh, at this point. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's like, well, it's, it's going to the U S and doing the PhD thing for you, or let's, let's give the real world a chance before right. we can 
put our heads down in the academic space. And that was my original thinking as I was, I had applied to, to Ann Arbor and was supposed to be going to the US to, to continue on my, the mm. academic track. Um, but I was like, yeah, you know what? There's something to be said about the real world, <laughs> real world experience. So, mm-hmm. um, so I got a job at a United Way of Calgary and area. Right. doing their housing and homelessness policy. And this was right in the boom time, which was also an interesting time to be doing housing policy because this was the, not a first time, but it was a, an important time where it, housing and homelessness were becoming um, top of mind issues for regular so-called Albertans. Right. And not that, like, anyways. No, it makes sense, totally. It makes yeah. sense, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And it's also the time when we saw homelessness jump so, so much. Uh, mm-hmm. Every couple of years, it was going up 30, 40%, depending on the city. And um, folks in Calgary that were in some of those decision-making powers were, were getting you know, disappointed with the status quo. So got in, business sector got involved in Calgary. They mm-hmm. mobilized here. They, they also mobilized in, in Edmonton and in all, in all seven cities. And I mean, the, the history is... Uh, still happening in a way because Medicine Hat is one of those successes that has came out of that mobilization um, during that time. So I and I was had a front row seat slash was um, was a key person doing the policy and data for for those plans and and then ended up at the Homeless Foundation from the United Way. Um, I was lured but not really lured because I mm-hmm. had I totally wanted to do it. Um, and then slowly went from kind of a policy nerd, um, manage, I was like the manager of research and policy, but I had zero mm-hmm. people reporting to, to me. So I'm not sure right. what I was doing other than <laughs> um, good, good title though. It's good it's title a good for the title. CV. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, exactly. It's all about the title. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but yeah, we were five people and ended up being like 40 people there. And wow. then I also kind of started to ask the bigger questions when I was, when I was there, because, you know, it's really hard to do policy and research when you don't have basic stuff like, hey, how many people are experiencing this? How many, how right. many services do we have? And how much is our money? Because we were responsible for about $40 million per year in, in the homeless serving system. And then slowly realizing, you know, it's a big pot of money, but it's actually not that big of a pot of money as mm-hmm. we think it is. But of course, at the time, you, you really do believe you're the be all end all funder. And I, you, you, as you as a funder, you, I don't know if you ever felt that way, but me as like 25 years old, <laughs> like no, no wherewithal of how big this thing is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is um, became really, yeah. really interested in, in those questions too. So mm-hmm. Well, there, I'm pregnant, so that changed changed everything. <laughs> Once again, yeah, I I can relate to, and I had um, Tom Insel on, and he Tom was the director of the National Institute for Mental Health, and they give out billions of dollars a year in in research funding for mental health. And when I was with um, a foundation that dispersed funds for addiction to mental health services, we were in the you know half a million to one point five million dollars. And I yeah. thought this, I thought it was just like, you know, so important, like, not that it wasn't important, yeah. but no, no. You know, there's, <laughs> there's, there's scales to these things. And so I read this book called Mind Fixers, Psychiatry's Troubled History with the Biology of Mental Illness by Anne Harrington. And um, there was this Tom Insel quote in the book. 
And he was the director from 2002 through 2015. And the essence of his quote was that, you know, while they spend billions of dollars on really cool papers by really cool scientists, I can honestly say, and this, this kind of relates back into your help seeker. I can honestly say we didn't move the needle at all on um, the recovery of hundreds of thousands of people, hospitalizations and suicides. And I hold myself accountable for that. And mm. when I, when I read that, <clears throat> it was very disarming in a, in a way um, where you go, well, yeah, this is a very, very complicated um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. problem and and to speak about the work that you do your work is even broader than just addiction and mental health but <clears throat> i think the same the same analogy would be would apply um mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. so why why did you were you doing your master's um and phd while you were working or did you take time off no uh yeah, how did it go? So I did my did my master when I was and I was working at Boyle Street and changing together. And then, um, you know, the way you normally do that stuff, courses and then thesis. And like I said, I was supposed to do the whole academic thing. I was studying post-communism and religious revivalism. So mm. relevant, not relevant, right. but it, it is about social movements and mm. what happens after these big ruptures in, in society. So you know, yeah. I can definitely, I can definitely see, make a case that it's you relevant. Can make the, you can make the I tie can make, in. I yeah. can make it. I, I, I can see it. I can see it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. There's a thread of, of sanity. Mm -hmm. um, but no, after, after that, when I was working at the Homeless Foundation, I did my PhD at the same time as working. So mm. it, took, it took four years, of course. And it was, I want to say the best thing that happened was getting pregnant because that really um, gave me about a month of the doctor putting me on medical leave saying like, no, just you're, you gotta, you gotta stop the 60 hours work week and that right. type of, stuff. I was right. by this point, I was the second in command. It was a big, it was a really big job. It was mm -hmm, lots mm -hmm. of pressure. And he's like, no, you're too big. Like, and I was, I was humongous. Um, <laughs> and there was actually a medical reason for it. I had no idea until afterwards that there was this peri uh, peripartum cardiomyopathy thing that okay. happened, which happens to like really overweight people, which I'm, I'm not, you can attest to this. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, but uh, really, really rare. And so uh, medically for a month. And so I was used to this intense job working right. six hours a week. So I literally sat there with the laptop on my belly and I, crushed that mofo like it was oh wow yeah I crushed my thesis during that month and then I defended it when I got back in the saddle um so I ended up getting it done in four years but by like only because <laughs> I was on medical leave right so it all worked that, out that's still impressive working full-time doing your PhD part-time four years I mean that's that, yeah that's I don't great. recommend it I don't recommend no. it <laughs> yeah. but okay. it puts your PhD in, in perspective because you're like oh well I have this okay I can I can do this thing like plan the winter response or I can worry about another 20 articles okay that are saying kind of the same thing okay <laughs> yeah yeah and <laughs> so it's, and it's good. you can't so overthink was it, was it at the um homeless foundation that you started thinking about uh return on investment for 
dollars invested into the system? Is that when you first started really thinking deeply about yeah. well, for every dollar we put in, how do we even know yeah, if it's there good, was, good, bad, or, or indifferent? Yeah, no, this whole, it's interesting. The It was at the time and it's all, it's, maybe it's because in, again, it all comes back to all these histories that you have. Like when you're coming from a country where you're, you turn off the lights because that matters for pennies. Like right. you, you track everything, right? Like every, mm -hmm. my grandma still reuses the same tea bag like 10 times until it's, you know, right. dirty. <laughs> we're used to, like, we were used to that. So even in my household, like, you know, I was, it's, you know, micromanaging budgets and thing like, things like that. So, and I say, I'm like, it's just another zero, you know, mm -hmm. managing $2,000 in salary versus 40 million. I'm like, it's just another zero. Right. So, um, so you kind of get used to the, the budgets and, and then when you do service assessments, like when you go into, um, and as a funder, you should be really, I believe again, that you should be really involved in understanding exactly what your money's doing. And that's not, and that is not the same thing as having a meeting with the executive director once a year. That is not the same right. thing. Right. What it means is you have a direct line to clients that and you have a process to actually cross-reference from different angles to understand what what the impact is and when you when you look at for instance case files that tells you one part of the story when you look at the data from a crm from a electronic records it tells you another part mm -hmm. of the story when you follow the money it tells you another part of the story when you talk to clients when you talk to their loved ones when you talk to the frontline versus manager versus ed you got to do all of that due diligence and mm -hmm. actually have an opinion about about what you're funding so i had that opportunity to create that process at C at chf at the calgary homeless foundation and, and implement it and of course like everybody hated it because it wasn't how funders normally did it right but i didn't know any different it mm -hmm. just made sense to me at the time um, and as you get through that work, you realize that not, not everything's created equal. Um, having been on the other side of it as a service provider at, at Boyle Street and uh, in the immigrant sector, I also, I also knew what to look for. So that, that matters too. And I was like young and shit disturbing. So um, I was also, you know, early in my career, you can take different risks too. Right, right. Um, so it, it was really, that was when my eyes kind of opened to the magnitude of, of the funding question and how it didn't line up with what I was listening from the lived experience side. So again, me lived experience, that's one story. But when you hear the same story over and over again, that people don't know what right. What's out there? They get door after door closed, repeating stories, re-traumatizing. You, you know, you hear it a billion times, and you're like, "Well, may, maybe it's us. <laughs> maybe right. it's not them." Yeah. So, and it, and I don't think you're ever going to meet a service provider or a funder out there that says, "You know what? We are equitable. We're accessible. We are fully. Co we're streamlined, coordinated, efficient." Mm -hmm. efficient. Mm -hmm. Says nobody ever. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's a known thing. Like I'm not I'm I don't think I'm being uh, innovative or disruptive in in saying saying these things because these are these are well well known things. And any consultation report you see, it's same story. It's the yes. what do you do about it. How many how many right. years in a row do you do this? And are you going to pass this on to your children as your legacy? Mm -hmm. and, you know, like I said, and when that, you have changes things. So what was your what was your catalyst? I mean, 
Um, and were you always entrepreneurial as, as mm. well? Because, you know, when you started um, Helpseeker, maybe talk a little bit about how that, yeah. that machination came to be, uh, because it's definitely unique um, and it is innovative and it is uh, potentially disruptive in, in good ways and also in ways that the status quo may have difficulty adapting to and then we can talk about that as well but yeah just maybe maybe walk us through that that journey sure, and... sure. yeah um i love how organic <laughs> this conversation is maybe it feels organic to me but you're like have it all planned out so if that's <laughs> good, on you, good on you um okay so the baby thing is the big thing for me like i said it was also a near-death experience because um i had such a or like my heart rate was 30, I believe. And I mean, oh wow. Yeah. yeah. They're like, oh, you must, are you like a marathon runner when I went into ER? <laughs> Hell no, I just gave birth two days ago. Like, right. oh shit. <laughs> so um, so no, like it was it was heart failure. So that you're like literally holding this little baby that I'm supposed to be breastfeeding and caring for, and I'm I'm have sleep deprived, whatever, like you know, hooked up to every type of wire out there. So yeah, that's, that was, that was a big deal. That was a big deal. You, I've had many big deals in my life and that was, that was a very big deal. Cause of course I'm 30. Um, I'm supposed to be going back to work. I even signed that actually, no, I, um, there was a top-up thing. Like when you're, you get mm -hmm. top up leave. Yep. for maternity leave. Yeah. Yep. So we can talk about that shit at some point, but um, and so I was supposed to come back and I had, you know, you kind of commit your life to coming back to get this maternity top up and it adds up to like 40 grand over the course of a year. Cause that you're right. Part of the benefit. So after that, I was like, what am I doing? Like, I think I'm just spinning wheels, like, or spinning plates or whatever, choose your metaphor. Like right. I'm a cog in this wheel. So I was like, I got to do something different. And then I was like, I know for sure I, there's bigger world in this, in this social space, um, than Calgary. So I'm like, I need to know that space mm -hmm. and I need to, I need to raise my kid. And so, um, so I en ended up quitting C uh, CHF when I was on mat leave and I had to pay the 40 grand back. Oh, so wow. pinching pennies, literally Mark, I was baking my own bread, like because that's wow. how poor we were, but that's how important it was to me to not go back. And it's so I, not I, as a as a principal and as an as a principal and ethic, you just said you had no job prospects or you didn't have a job in the pipeline. No, you nothing. just quit because you had this eureka moment where you said, "I can't do this." Yeah, and it's like it's nothing. Poor CHF. Like it sounds like so bad. It's it's not like it's just wasn't where my, mm -hmm. my headspace was at, mm -hmm. and it was a, it was a really formative part of my career. And it was, they were great to me. Like, clearly yeah. I, I went from a fake manager to an actual vice president. Like it was <laughs> clearly, uh, I had every opportunity given to me, um, or not, not given, I shouldn't say that because I definitely earned that. You work for it. <laughs> exactly. But I as know. a little, you know, immigrant female that could have easily been bypassed, I, I was, I definitely you know, was able to merit my way right. uh, in that organization, which I really appreciate it too. And, and when you quit 
was it immediately cathartic and did you know immediately that you made the right decision or was it oh yeah uh, no, no. Did, uh, yeah yeah yeah, I'm actually really impulsive. I realized this in my later life. I, yeah, <laughs> I like, I, yeah, like I'm just like I know, like I know what the right thing is. Like mm-hmm. if it feels right. I'm probably really wrong, but in my own head, it's it's right. So mm-hmm. you don't yeah. look back. No, I definitely had had no regrets. So yeah, then I was like, shit, what am I gonna do? Because like I said, um, Travis was still a teacher, but we had this mortgage, and um, you know, baking bread is like it's not you don't save that much money. Right. So, <laughs> it doesn't really pan out that much. Right. Um, but yeah, so I said, let let me see if I can get some contract work. Well, sure enough, there's this huge other industry, speaking of disrupting industries, there's a huge cottage consulting industry in the social sector. So lots of shit pops out of left field. Somebody needs a program evaluation. Somebody is like, oh, you're, you did Calgary. Help me, help me in Medicine Hat. Help right. me in Lethbridge. Help me in Edmonton. So I ended up doing a bunch of work around homelessness because that was now I was kind of known for, for having expertise mm-hmm. in that. Um, but that took me all over the country for a good seven years in this kind of consult niche consulting space. Mm-hmm. And as I was going through the country, honestly, rents repeat because it's the same problems. Mm. And after a while, there's only so many ways of, you know, um, telling people that they need more affordable housing or permanent supportive right, housing. Right. You're really repeating yourself after a while. Yeah. And so I was like, this is, this is also wrong. This is also mm-hmm. not it. This is also not it. Now in the process, there were some big learnings I had. Number one, that it is a, uh, a scaled problem and that there are scalable solutions or repeatable solutions. And it's a repeatable problem. Mm-hmm. The other one was that that it's way bigger than homelessness, which again, mm-hmm. you know, from mental health, yep. but it's also freaking entwined. So to say mm-hmm. this is homelessness and this is mental health, to say this mm-hmm. is addiction, this is mental health, to say this is whatever, pick your poison, pick your social right. issue, and they're all entwined. Yeah. And then you're, you're getting, you're getting the questions of like, well, if you did a homelessness strategy, can you help us on a poverty strategy or a mental health strategy? And you're realizing you're actually like, all you're doing is it's like, can't really explain it, but you're looking at the same thing, but through a different, uh, just a different lens. Like it's those kaleidoscope things that you hold up to your, and you see different patterns and you think you're seeing a totally different image, but it's the same pieces, just the mirrors Mm -hmm. are, are showing different aspects. And so you go through that a bunch of times. And then as you, as you get to the parts that are always, always part of the process, the basics, who's doing what, who's funding what, how much were we putting into this? What's the best way of using our resources? How big is the problem going to get? Those are the same questions in every community and on every issue. And then you're, and then you're sitting there with Netflix suggesting your next movie and skip the dishes suggesting your next meal. And you're like, shit. And we're going through this massive societal transformation. So back to the, the social change parts, um, social change, not in the, this is better or worse, just society changing, um, and technology being a huge, huge, huge impetus for it. 
So it was happening around me and I started getting really interested in the, in the technology change aspects and, and what that was going to do to populations that were marginalized from the technology revolutions. That, what, that we, what triggered that for you, the tech side of it? The tech side, other, I mean, other, other, other than the obvious, you know, it's everywhere. Yeah, it's happening. Well, I mean, my dad's an engineer. He was one of the first people to get a GIS master's in Canada. So oh, wow. it's kind of part of part of the convert family convos. Um, and tech technology change is and um, social changes are always entwined in history. Like you think of the, the simple stuff is like the Gutenberg press. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like right. you can't you can't go backwards from that so um you know you ha- and in some ways as as you start thinking about the history of of the social sector and the history of social issues i got really interested in 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 that as i was going through my consulting work because i was trying to understand the places i was i was making recommendations to and so you have to go into the history you have to understand right. why it's different here versus there and you realize like, wow, these, these systems have these roots in colonial process. Okay, cool. But what about before that? Oh, it was in the charity, charity laws of, of England. Okay. And what about before that? Oh, it was the, in the, the church and the word charisma, car, har is actually the roots of it are come out of the liturgy. So they're all entwined in these really, really deep um, Western social roots and institutions. Yeah, totally, totally. So you go, you just keep digging, digging deep. And then you think, well, shit, you know, I'm trying to end homelessness, but well, if I look at the scrolls from ancient Greece, they had this too. So, so is this, is this inevitable? And then you go even further back and you think, is this an agricultural revolution thing? When did we have the original affluent society. And even though this seems like a tangent, it is 100% anthropology 101, right? right. It's, it is, you learn this shit in 101. So you kind of go all the way through and you have this big cycle all the way back to, to literally 101, the beginning. And you think, okay, so it's, it's been there, but it, it's not inevitable because it's constructed because we have examples of when it doesn't happen. So it, so that means we can do something about it, but we need to deconstruct it too. We need to understand it and we need to understand mm-hmm. it from these different angles. And this tech stuff is a threat if we, if it's going to ha- happen to us because all the other industrial revolutions that happened already have not exactly helped bring society into a more equitable place. If anything, right. you know, pretty quite the opposite but overall you're like the mortality rates are pretty good overall it's not what it used to be or you know we've got such huge success in the medical fields etc so all that to say please cut me off because like i said i do tangents no 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 (laughs) how i came to the help seeker thing (laughs) yes yes and so so you you were consulting you were um doing similar projects and seeing the same problems um, in different cities, provinces. And then you got interested in tech. And then at what point did you then say, you know, I don't want to create a new charity. Mm -hmm. I want to be entrepreneurial and create a um, part B social enterprise. Maybe talk about why you chose that path. And, and, and yeah. why you chose, 
um, yeah, why you chose that path and then how you came to develop the business itself, because mm-hmm. there's, to me, it would be a lot of um, expertise in the, in the tech and um, develop development side that you would need how did you coalesce kind of a team around that and and raise money and do all that stuff how did that all work itself out so that now um so now this it's three years ago (laughs) i take you back to three years ago and these conversations that we're we're having me and travis are having every every day at at home so he's a teacher i'm doing my consulting before that i was a funder he was um, whatever. So he's moving up in his career. He's now kind of in the principal thing, doing uh-huh. the administration side. And we're still like comparing notes every day. And he's like, shit, I, I literally have these kids now in junior high. And I could tell you that they're going to be coming your way. So that was always like the, right. the big frustration because we couldn't tie the systems together. So then I really got interested in the systems integration part that, okay, we've got this thing called the social sector. Well, we've got the education sector. We've got the health sector. We've got justice Mm -hmm. sector. All of this shit has to line up for things to be, to be doing right or uh, working in a, in a better way. And so we said, we're like, maybe there's a way that we could just kind of jolt things with some with some tech, like just like sim- sometimes it's a simple, simple solutions. And right. so we said, well, it's not like we're tech experts, but interestingly, Trav has a tech leadership background and education system. So how do you get schools into the 21st century and okay. create the yeah. 21st century learner? And then so I, he's got a bit of the, a bit of that, a bit of uh, that. Mm-hmm. at least that applied the applied tech, not the coding yeah. side. Yeah, And then um, my part was when I was at the, again, Homeless Foundation, I was responsible for the HMIS, which is the Homelessness Management Information System. Right. Huge, huge, huge project that I uh, tricked people into letting me run because I was definitely not qualified. Again, <laughs> but you were interested that, in that? But I was interested in it because like I said to you before, like you can't really make recommendations if you don't have a like really basic right. shit. So I was like, hey. We need this. We need this. And that that's managing the data of yeah, um, people, yeah, people moving, yeah, moving in and out of services. So in in believe it or not, actually you will believe this. (laughs) Um, in Alberta, we didn't have a CRM, a customer relations management software, until we did this. Um yeah, so we didn't have that. And we still don't really have a a solid one. No, we don't, we don't actually have one in the social sector at large because we can get into, into why, but okay. there, there isn't one kind of pathway that, or a uh, digital pathway for end users right now, mm-hmm. mostly because people believe or not in positions of power, don't think uh, so-called vulnerable people can handle technology, which is mm-hmm. huge, huge ridiculousness. But I, I was responsible for that. And in my, again, 20s hubris, I was like, yeah, I can do this. And we somehow managed to, to get this in. So I knew I knew about uh, the tech space from that perspective. I had to do tons of privacy impact assessments and get audited up and down. Because again, Calgary, like, you know, Mavericks that we are, didn't follow mm-hmm. the provincial direction. And we're like, no, nope, we're going to do it our way. We're going to have 
this one system that everybody plugs into and we're gonna be able to give unduplicated accounts. I'm gonna do a better job reporting. So we didn't pay it, we didn't respect the usual boundaries of funders. We said, I don't give mm -hmm. a shit that this is this department or that department. It's the same client. I need to be able to have a 360 on this right. client so that I know I'm doing the right thing and I'm not creating unintended barriers downstream. But of course, at the time, you weren't supposed to do that. So as a result, I got really good at audits because we got audited so much because they didn't mm -hmm. like what we were doing. Um, and of course, we fucking killed it because we were on top of it. I had an awesome team at the time. But that's how I got into the tech side, too. So I had this the mm. tech band. When I was doing consulting, I was doing tech implementations and tech recommendations, too. So I just didn't have coding um, specifically right. software dev, right. but I worked yeah. with those teams quite a bit to do that. So yeah, with, with the help seeker side, when Travis and I were chatting about it and the origin story is like, again, a convoluted thing, but Travis is it a lot better. <laughs> He's like, we wanted to order Thai food in Vancouver and uh, visiting Travis' sister. And I said like, this is so fucked up that I can you know go to a new city and I can find the best Thai food like within mm -hmm. 200 meters. But I'm a, a violence, you know, victim or experiencing homelessness. And I, I have nothing. I got, I have no right, idea. Right. And you were like, yeah, this is so fucked up. And then like all, you know, tech entrepreneurs, we think we're going to change the world with an app. So we literally thought, <laughs> oh yeah, this is it. This is it. We're just going to create the Yelp of social services. Like, and that was like our tagline. And so yeah. we're like, how much can it possibly cost? I'm like, this is so easy. I'm like, it's, it's like, you know, snip snap. So I'm like, okay, I'll just find out somebody that can code this for me, whatever. I found, I found a guy, his name was Igor. He's actually still with us. <laughs> oh, wow. I know it's only been three years, but he's like, yeah, like I, I got you girl. Like, okay. He's, he's also an East Euro, um, in Toronto. And, uh, he's like, got oh, 10 grand. I'm like, sweet. That's exactly what I was thinking. 10 grand. This will do it. So we just <laughs> pulled, it, pulled it out of our savings. So, so off we went and then I went to uh to Jamie Rogers who's my uh really good friend and colleague from Medicine Hat and her and I did this this whole Medicine Hat ending homelessness thing and we we crushed that shit and I was like Jamie this is going to be our next thing this is our next innovation everybody was like paying attention to Medicine Hat and I was like this is it this is one of the recommendations that we always hear is people experiencing these issues saying I need something digital like come on, I right. can order, you know, somebody said like this perfect vintage from this specific liquor store. Everybody has their own stories, right? Like on mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. what, what prompted it. Um, and so I, I, I was like, okay, let's launch it in medicine hat. And so we're like, okay, the launch and there's actually an article on it in medicine hat, believe it or not, when we launched it. And uh, we had like 25 organizations sign up that first day, but wow. Um, and it was great, right? It was great because Medicine Hat just crushes everything and they're mm -hmm. just so innovative down there. And uh, from there, we're like, okay, well, this, this might be a thing, right? This might be a thing. And then we started getting calls from other places like Lethbridge and Travis was like, shit, um, like you're consulting. I'm like, yeah, I'm consulting. I was, mm -hmm. this is just my little side project. So I'm like, yeah, I think you're going to need to quit your pension union wow. job to run this so then travis was like the first we always joke he was the first employee for the first year because we were trying to figure it out but to your point like 
investors, like, I, to be honest, like I still don't really know anything about that space. We didn't raise anything. It was bootstrapped. It continues to be bootstrapped. We, okay. uh, we have, we have these license agreements to uh, data services and um, decision support, a decision support system. So it grew from an app into like this full fledged platform for mm-hmm. end users to find services and connect to services. And there's a whole bunch of stuff we can talk about on what's on the on the docket for upcoming releases. Mm-hmm. Then we created um, a decision maker component. So decision yeah. makers, for instance, like, oh, what are my suicide rates going to be next year based on mm-hmm. what's happening right now? Oh, what are what are the patterns of help seeking that I'm seeing in my community now that COVID is here? All of these numbers are one thing, but from there, it's the insights from it. So what does this mean to me as a, as a funder? And then this, this part that brings us to the connection that we have through Dale, because part of, part of the data that we ingest into this machine that, again, it's got Mm -hmm. machine learning, it's got all this, this Mm -hmm. fancy black box stuff that I'm not going to embarrass myself trying to talk about, (laughs) but the, there's this big dream that I've always had on the research side that I like, if these things are repeatable and they're knowable, that means that there's a way to connect the data to tell us, tell us more about it. And I was always doing it with Excel. And I always joke that I have grade 11 math and I, nobody should let me anywhere near an Excel file, but that's again, <laughs> learn on the job, you make it work. And as part of that process, I was like, I think I can predict this. I think I can predict homelessness. I was like, I think I can predict other stuff too. So um, as we built out the team and I had, you know, you bring in more money, all I do is hire more people. So, and don't worry, I'll get to the, the B Corp stuff in, in, in my long tangent here, but um, I brought on a machine learning folks starting last year. And so we had this opportunity to look at things like COVID, look at things like the TSX and the price of gold. And what does that have to do with domestic violence or suicide? Well, before with my little Excel and correlations, like you can really do that. But with machine learning, you mm-hmm. can't. So you literally mm-hmm. can figure this out. And so that has been a huge, huge piece because you can now talk about proactive decision-making, not these mm-hmm. that. Now, is the sector ready for that? You know, we got a lot of work to do getting people right. savvy on and comfortable with technology, but mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's still, it's a big deal to be able to, to know that, that it's, that it's the unknowable is now knowable if, if you will in that space. So. Okay. okay I have a lot of questions and I, I think sure. we'll, we'll, let's, let's, let's start with the B Corp. So tell me sure. about um, what the rationale yeah. was there, mm-hmm. which so, I completely think yeah. is awesome by the way. Yeah, no, I, my first foray into social enterprises was uh, also in my 20s. I wanted to, when I was at the United Way of uh, Calgary and area, I was pitching the United Way and obviously it didn't go anywhere because I probably would have had a different career, but I was pitching them on solving the housing and homelessness issue through a um, back then it wasn't called B Corp. It was like just social enterprise. Right. So I, I pitched doing kind of this, this home ownership model uh, for social enterprises where, where we would just have a development corporation and build, build as if we were building for private, but have 
um, have, have that mixed model in, internally. So again, nothing super innovative. It's just, mm-hmm. just seemed like, it just seemed like we couldn't rely on government and taxpayers for this mm-hmm. stuff because it's mm-hmm. fickle, it's political, it's all those things. And, yep. and it just, no, just didn't, as a 20 year old, it just didn't seem that innovative to just write grants all day, grant approvals. Right. Be- be- beg for money from the government. Yeah. Yeah. Or donors for that matter, right? Because right. the United yeah. Way was donors and the mm-hmm. donor, um, the donor interest in this stuff is not the same as it might've been in, you know, when we were doing into the 10% tithe <laughs> for the beginning of charities. So, yeah, yes. um, so yeah, I had this passion about social enterprises since, um, since that. And again, I, I wanted to do it at the Homeless Foundation. We ended up with something similar because we we spun off a, a um, housing uh, provider. It's now um, it's now its own its own entity and and it has its own I assets. See. But but it's not quite what I was in my head. I wanted it to be yeah. like, but it could be. It could definitely be. Mm-hmm. It's just uh, sorry, I'm kind of blurry, but um, that's all right. Yeah, so I, I wanted it to be this this thing that could sustain itself um, mm-hmm. by itself by itself. So yes, yes, and so it wouldn't be beholden to anybody. And and so, um, and I still feel like that's a really really big deal. Um, and why part of the reason I, I ended up with this model. And so when I when I was talking to Travis, like okay, this app thing is actually needs to be its own entity. It needs to be. It's much bigger than an app. It's it's got to be a, a technology solution mm-hmm. for um, disrupting the, the social sector in, in a positive way. And, and it can't be government dependent because then we can't right. say certain things and it can't be donor dependent mm-hmm. because we can't mm-hmm. say certain things. We need to be able to, to have that, you know, say our piece, if you will, and, and be able to be okay with it um, getting burnt down, I say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or, or, staff, so I, that's not, that's, I want to assure everybody that that's not the case, but having that. No, yeah. And so I guess on the uh, revenue generation side, so you're not, I guess your funding comes from. From like, it's what, from like, it's a SAS licenses. model. Oh, yes. yeah. Okay. So, so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So SAS for, for those that aren't familiar, it's like software as a service. So you, you, it's kind of like, well, it's like anything else out there that you're probably familiar with, where you, you pay a subscription fee, you get access to, yeah. to certain features. And we also package that with services as well. So there's, you know, lots of, um, let's say, decision makers that might want to do a social impact audit, like the case was in Edmonton. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they'll say, okay, well, I can pay a certain fee to just get the data and I can play with it myself. Or I also want somebody to walk me through and understand what this means because I'm not a data scientist and I'm not, you know, a policy mm-hmm. wonk in, in the social sector. So right. there's these kind of uh, packages accordingly. So that's how we've been able to, to manage thus far. Again, we were lucky that I had a good name, if you will, in, in the social sector. So mm-hmm. people like now, mind you, lots of people still think I'm nuts and that's okay. But um, well, well, maybe let's talk about that a little bit because um, you are doing something and, and maybe we can tie this into the social impact audit report mm-hmm. with the city of Edmonton as well. If that's okay. Yeah, of course. A little bit of feedback, but um, what has, what, 
what what has the reception been like from the social sector, charitable sector, as you've evolved Help Seeker, um, mm-hmm. and, and and from the people that you had worked with in the past, has it been positive or has it been mixed, or how would you describe? The yeah, I think I think we're certain people's flavor, and we're certain people's like bane of existence. So, so I would and say so make, maybe. Make, can I, can I, can I, can I ask you what type of person, is there a profile of a person who would be the bane of existence? Cause in my mind, I could par- probably people that have been reliant on government funding for 25 years and don't want to do things differently because maybe they're at the latter stages of their career or people that think that um, the system is working well as it is. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. or, or is there a, is there a certain type? Is there a profile? Is there a demographic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, a, bane, a bane of your existence demographic. <laughs> um, it's honestly people whose funding this threatens is yes, yeah. commonality. So yeah. sadly, as much as the social sector, we want to be altruistic. And but then you threaten money and then it's a, oh, it's a different it's a different conversation afterwards. And it's it, that's been so fascinating mm-hmm. um, because, again, if you're OK to be taken out, that gives you mm-hmm. a certain freedom to say certain things and to and be power. like, and okay, it's it's liberating. Right. It's mm-hmm. liberating because um, you're like, yeah, but this is so social impact audits are really fucking good example. Because mm-hmm. let me let me tell you the story of this shit. Because again, um, I wrote a blog about this stuff, and I'm like, please, somebody, if you think you coined the term social impact audit, please let me know. Like, I I want to meet you because like we didn't know what to call this thing, so we made it up. At least we made it up internally to describe the process of looking at financials and outcomes and mm-hmm. just and client you know, client impact to discern whether a system was having an, the intended positive effect according right. to this to this particular data. Mm-hmm. And in the process of trying to map Canada, um, I was like, shit, um, social services don't actually want to be found necessarily. So when mm-hmm. I, I was like, I'm releasing this app where I'm solving this problem, it's a free app. Because again, it was this ten thousand dollar gift to the world. I right. thought I was e- doing a favor. Yeah, Igor. <laughs> yeah, Igor. Yeah, me and Igor. And I was like, oh, I released it. Now everybody, guess what? I'm here's the app. Just fill fill your shit out, and it's it's done. Check mark. Everybody can put this check mark. Well, like beyond the twenty four agencies for medicine had that were doing it because they were it was a favor to Jamie slash me. Um, like nobody signed up, so we're like, oh, like okay, um, maybe there's something to it. So then we were like, okay, let's do some market research, whatever this thing is. Because <laughs> again, I'm not a, I wasn't like a business person. I was a social right. person. So, yeah. but at research, I'm like, okay, let's find out. And so uh, there was some kind of uh, anonymous feedback and people were like, well, Alina, if we put our shit on the internet, then people are going to find us. Like, we, what if we don't want people to know about us? Because like, mm. get the same amount of money. So Mm -hmm, that sounds like more work and I was like what oh shit I didn't think of that like what if people don't want to be found like what if I never thought of that I always assumed we wanted to be more accessible and more transparent and that's an assumption (laughs) 
that's an assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then secondly, I was like, well, if we want to, if we want to understand this sector, let's take, follow the money. And so I'm like, oh, everybody just give me your financial data. You have to report right. it anyways. Yeah, right. Like, why do you want to know my financial data? Well, because it's taxpayer dollars. So like, shouldn't we analyze it as a, as a collective and understand the impact together? And like, fuck no, like, that's, that's not your business. So I'm like, oh crap. Okay. There's, but I was like, but surely there's got to be a way to trace this stuff because mm-hmm. as a funder, I, I knew, I knew I had to report it up. I'm like, well, everybody's got to figure out how to, how to report this stuff. I just have to figure out how to get it. So, right. you know, lo and behold, like through like just mining and mining and mining and figuring, understanding FOIP legislation, for instance, that there's some, some mm-hmm. of the stuff where all, we as citizens are entitled to know this information, right. tax dollars, like there's nothing yeah. secret about it. It's not about, you know, Alina Turner went to the shelter. It's, the shelter received this much money to deliver this kind of service this year from this source. So there's nothing private about it. So anyways, we, we created this data set or started to create these data sets to understand this, the systems and who was doing what part. And it was all in this process of trying to, to map services across Canada. Mm-hmm. We mapped, I think we're, we started, like I said, with 24 in Medicine Hat three years ago. And I think we're at 285,000 today. Wow. And just wow. like wrap your head around that, like 285,000 services across the country um, and $380 billion per year. Oh, wow. Wow. That's insane. Well, so, you, so, so you've done the um, audit for the entire country. Well, right. it's, it's an, it's the, the never ending audit because we keep finding uh, more stuff. Right, right. It's ongoing. Well, maybe, let, data set, yeah. Would you say three hundred eighty-five billion dollars um, Canada-wide? Yeah, three hundred eighty billion. Okay, so let's talk about the um, the Edmonton audit. So, um, mm-hmm. the city of Edmonton tasked, and this is in June of twenty twenty. So this must have been right during Black Lives yeah. Matter, George, George Floyd. All was that all happening at this time? Was that the was impetus? Completely. It might have been. Um, when did the oh, when did that stuff uh, happen? I can't. Okay, I th- I thought it was it it, it, it could have been it, it definitely is wrapped up in that now because anything to do oh. with police is wrapped up in that. Right. Um, yeah. So, but the but the city commissioned or told the Edmonton the, Police yes. Commission with Chief yeah. Dale McPhee that we want you to do this assessment of how funding is being deployed and whether it's being deployed in an efficient manner or not. And so Dale being the data guy, the innovator, connects with you somehow. And um, you work together to produce this audit. And so first of all, how did Dale, did you and Dale know each other from a past life or how did that even come to be? No, uh, we met because I was doing some data, some data project for um, just, this was also last year, mental health and addictions. There was a task force um, I'm, I'm not sure if they released their report. I wasn't on the no. test. I was like, they brought me in for a couple of like presentations. Okay. And stuff. Dale and was on the task force. Yeah. Dale was on the task force. Correct. And I think in one of those task force meetings, I was like, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. There's, this is how many services Alberta has. This is how much money goes in. He's like, oh, okay. So it probably stuck with, with him. I see. And, um, so then when they received that task from council, he was like, 
I mean, Dale's ears perked up because obviously that's a, those are big numbers, um, of course. And right away, people are initially people are like, oh, that's like universities and hospitals. I'm like, no, we took those out. <laughs> like, it's not. Yeah, yeah. Um, or you know, there's all these these reasons not to listen to to it. Um, but yeah, so I think he was like, okay, well, I think I know somebody who can who can do this. And they also had like a really tight timeline on it, so. Uh-huh. Um, the, yeah, we were, we were in good shape to, to do that, but I don't think they released it until, until much later in the year. Um, obviously because I had to go through council and, and all that right. kind of stuff, but yeah. So we, and, the task was to figure, to figure out the entire social safety net. And that's why, when you started off saying, you know, this seems well beyond the police. I'm like, yeah, cause the task uh-huh. was like, you know, here's police budget and here's the social here's the social safety net let's define that you know what what does it entail social safety net in in oecd countries is primarily defined by your your know your employment insurance your welfare your disability pension your seniors you know oas cpp that type of stuff but in canada it's i'm sure it's in other countries as well but i know canada the best um, it's also the social services, of course, that we provide. It's yeah. not just benefits. So it'd be really misleading to just talk about, oh, this is how many, how much money welfare payments were, you know, coming into Edmonton last year. Like that would uh-huh. be missing the point. Uh-huh. So we said, let's look at the benefits and then let's also look at the services side. And right. um, and then really narrow in, and of course their their big question from council and just reading the report was really around the, the rise. So to your point, what caused it? think it was the social disorder, the tense social disorder. I'm putting quote marks around that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the tense city um, that had popped up last summer yep. that prompted mm-hmm. it. And then, and then of course the, the policing thing came right on top of that too. Um, and all, all of that stuff surrounding money, right? you know? And so um, having, having a conversation about, you know, what, how big is this, this pot of money? Who's getting it? It's, you want to have a conversation about equity? Let's, let's have a conversation about equity. Our yeah. organizations that are, were, you know, equity seeking, getting this money, our clients that are, you know, indigenous receiving the right services. Like, how can you answer that question if you don't know yeah. Yeah. those basics? Um, so, okay. I'll, okay. I'll, so I'll illuminate. So you, 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 dug into the data and you came up with this number to say um, city of Edmonton, or not the city of Edmonton, Edmonton mm-hmm. is spending $7.5 billion per year on the um, social services safety nets, which, I mean, I don't know how that number struck you, but I was saying to Dale, like, even if it was $4 billion, um, mm-hmm. it's just, it, the not, the number to me seems astronomical not in the sense that it just seems like wow and and to layer on top of that fact it'd be one thing for me this has always been a an issue for me but it'd be one thing for me if you knew that that funding was being deployed in an effective coordinated um, systemic way and that um, people's lives are improving Um, but and i'll just speak to the um, addiction mental health side of things you know, things seemingly are getting worse. And I know that's not a specific, you know, health system problem. It's a societal problem as much as 
um, anything else, but you know, now that you have that number, um, what do you do with it? And I, I guess you have these a immediate actions for consideration, mm -hmm. um, which we can talk about, but, but maybe I was actually surprised that I didn't hear more about it um, in the media at the time, and perhaps COVID played a role in that. But um, what do you intend to do with the report? Or I guess another question would be, <clears throat> whose report is it? Mm -hmm. And then what did what did they do with it? Because as I said to you earlier, this is not a police issue mm -hmm. alone. This is not a city no. of Edmonton issue alone. This is a provincial, national, um, mm -hmm. or federal issue. And so how mm -hmm. do you take this? And then how do you take this and then action it in a way that's going to be um, optimizes its um, effectiveness as a, as a as a, as a yeah. document. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's very interesting because for the first two years of having those numbers and, and working with those numbers, people didn't even want to talk to me about it. They, mm -hmm. and I, this was, you know, in a way and for better or worse, those conversations about defunding the police are un, to me, the right leverage point to be digging even deeper than than policing and um I, I think you saw it in their report it's it's not it's not to say that um the justice system does not need to improve clearly this is huge imperative it's just that everybody else has to as well <laughs> you know what i mean it's mm -hmm. not a it's not a but it's an and and um you know i i, I think about and I reflect on on reconciliation a lot. We have a we have a big focus on that in our in our work. We have indigenous leaders that are on our team leading social impact audits. For instance, Mo uh, Fry is our VP of Community Success, and is from the Stolo Nation in in British Columbia. And she's leading the Ottawa social impact audit, working with police there. And it's a it's the imperative that if we want to be doing a better job on reconciliation, we have to follow the money. We have to understand that as part of the story. And if we want to reform systems, we have to reform police, but we also have to reform the social sector and ask these questions of it. And, and I don't want to say modernize it because that's like, mm. sounds really mechanical, but, but we do need to reshape it, reconstruct it as well in, in this, in a new way. Yeah, and, you use the word recalibrate, which is a good word. Yeah. I think modern. I think modernize is is a completely fine word to use. As okay. well. Um, let's maybe just walk. Let's. Do you mind if we just walk through these um, actions for consideration and and just consider them? Um, sure. I'm going to paraphrase, perhaps, but um, the first action: City Council can consider promoting the following areas of action in the immediate term. Um, the first was around developing an integrated investment framework for any funded or government delivered interventions, program services, or benefits. Mm -hmm. And the recommendation is that all investment should flow through a consistent procurement and performance management process overseen with strategic governance provided by the community systems integration table, assuming mm -hmm. that's a new table that's established to oversee that. Philanthropic and other government funders should be encouraged to co-invest slash stack leverage through the same mechanism to maximize impact. Um, mm -hmm. 
I mean, I, I, I read that and I think, um, yes, that's, that's a great like, sure. Action, Easy, action right? For, action for consideration. How does, <laughs> how does, okay, how does city council then take that and, and do something with it? And is there a role for the provincial government to play? If yeah. you're going to if you're going to be doing similar audits in Calgary or Red Deer, um, yeah, because I would suspect that you would want to have baseline data for all of the major centers, and then you know then you can compare and contrast um, yeah. who's doing better. And people don't like to yeah. say this, but ultimately, these things are kind of a competition, and the world is a competition. And the charitable sector doesn't like to say this, but it's a competition. And you might as well just outright say it. Um, and this is the sad part about it. It's like you're competing for dollars, you're competing for brand, you're competing for profile. And obviously you want to help the people that you serve. But I think more and more um, the charitable sectors lost sight of the impact for clients. And, and I, I'll put myself in this bucket too. And they've... Um, their focus is so much on elevating their profile, their brand, generating more revenue for themselves. And so I think the chari charitable sector, now I'm going on my little bit of a tangent. So allow me, because this is kind of getting off topic. <laughs> By all means. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's kind of like we've lost the thread to a certain degree on what the point is of this whole sector. Um, and it's, it's somewhat disenchanting for me as somebody who works it, who sits on boards um, that deploy funds, significant funds. Um, and so I would love to see something like this um, mm -hmm. be implemented. The challenges I see though, is mm -hmm. that there's this issue that people have with the, the, the hierarchical structures, you know, top down. Mm -hmm. And I know there's mm -hmm. a community table, but Mm -hmm. how, how do we get this to a place where somebody's going to have to make a bold decision eventually, yeah. or, or a number of people are going to have to make bold decisions that a lot of people aren't going to like. And I just wonder whether it's city council or it's the provincial government that needs to step in and say, Hey, we're going to be looking at uh, key performance indicators, return on investment, and the government has said that to a certain degree. But maybe just talk through your thinking on on number one, and I'll yeah. try not to I'll try not to tangent on the the remaining. Yeah. No. No doubt. No doubt. I know there's eight. Uh, they get easier, I think. I kind of okay. I put yeah, yeah, yeah. the of like likelihood of happening. Right. right. <laughs> um, and. Okay, this is actually my thinking. So this is my report to um, the powers that be in, in Edmonton that charged EPS to develop a report about the social safety net of which they are like a tiny part of. So right. obviously I was like, PS, uh, I mean, good luck trying to fix social issues if you're only focusing on police. Like we got to look at this yes, whole thing. Yes. It of course it involves the provincial government because they're 80% of that money that, that right. you- yeah point out so yes you know, i mean donors sure they got to be part of the solution um but provincial government is a humongous player here and a humongous source of our advocacy around this has to be with 
these provincial ministries mm -hmm. that are um, that are, have created these disparate funding streams, mm -hmm. all well-meaning. This is not a well-meaning thing. Like this is not calling no. anybody out on that. I think we can everybody can agree on you know best intent, but you know history has proven that intent, good intent, has not always panned out. Yes. Uh, and a positive social impact. So I think it's really important in a democracy to be very critical of, of good intent and with facts. So the facts are that end users are not experiencing the system equitably and they're not, we're not as taxpayers, I don't think we're getting the best value, value out, of, out of this investment. Mm -hmm. Fact. And then, yes. <laughs> so, yes. so that means it's the, the impetus is, is, to create enough of an upswell to move the needle politically, I think, and to make it, to entrench it into those administrative layers that, quote, we don't bother learning the names of ministers because they just switch anyways. Right. So it's gotta be entrenched uh, in these departments. We've gotta think about how, how we can create these mechanisms so these checks and balances happen on, on the level of an end user and on the and the community that's experiencing these issues, if Edmonton is having ten cities pop up, like that's mm -hmm. that's not a thing. Like we can't not talk about that. We can't not mm -hmm. that can't not be at the cabinet table and that can't not be at a ADM and a DM uh, policy table as a as a critical issue. Like clearly, our social safety net requires a recalibration. What are you doing? What am I doing? How much are we putting into this? working at at this looking at this strategically and not having that that approach that this is a this is a city council problem this jockeying thing is again how do you get over this you know this the city's doing this but the the province is not on the same page and these ideological things uh, questions get in the way of unfortunately of, of decision making that is benefiting the people affected the most so we, how do we create these accountability mechanisms? And that's what that recommendation is about. At least at the investment level, can we please just agree that we're going to do basic things like tell each other when we're funding and defunding stuff? Like, right. Yes. This yes. is not this is not a fucking hard thing to do. Yes. Okay. Like, yes. You know, I'm. I. I mean, you know, in a household, you're not. You, you can do that. So, and with you can do that with a couple of thousand dollars, and you can see what a big difference that makes. Why can't we? Why can't we do that? Get that together at that at that provincial level, and then mm -hmm. at this local community level. Now, what can the city do? I would say I'm going to point to the city of Lethbridge, who is getting their shit together in a very cool way, where the city said, "Okay, enough of this jockeying internally. We're going to merge and stack." And these recommendations come from Lethbridge implementing them, and then we're going to bring together the province. And we're going to bring together the feds and we're going to bring together the philanthropy sector. And we're going to say, Hey, I can't tell you what to do. I'm the city, but here's what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to lead by example. You can come. I can't tell you to come with me. I hope you come with me because it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause they don't have any authority, right. but they influence. And they're, they're saying, I'm going to get my house in order. And then I'm going to invite you to watch to watch me get my shit together and be really open about the things I'm not doing well. So for instance, uh, information management systems and ROI analysis, procurement policies and procedures that are consistent and transparent and all of that. And I'm gonna hope that 
you're going to do me the courtesy of returning that favor when it's your turn. Now, has that panned out? A little bit. It's starting. It's starting, but it's got to start somewhere. And so a really easy thing is FCSS. That's a city ran controlled mm-hmm. program. And um, there's other municipal grants that the city controls. You know, are those stacked effectively internally? Right. And then are those stacked um, effectively or coordinated effectively with other funding streams, such as the United Way, such as um, Homeward Trust, such as mm-hmm. Alberta Health Services, such as mm-hmm. you, know, you guys and the philanthropy foundations. So, and it's more than just talking about it and meeting at the CEO level. It's actually like looking at the legislation. What can I do with my money that you can't do? Mm-hmm. And what does the community need overall? Where do I fit in? Where do you fit in? And like starting to like Tetris pieces, these things together to create to put back the safety net, essentially, because we don't have one right now. It's yeah. all just patchwork. So, yes. um, so um, just speaking through immediate actions for consideration and, and number one, having a integrated investment framework, which I think is a great idea. Um, and, and there's, I would say there's in the philanthropic world, it's been in fits and starts. And again, you know, back to the element of competition, um, that's always that's always going to be there, and so mm-hmm. I think certain incentive structures need to change, um, in order for that to change the way in which organizations think about money. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, it all comes down to money and politics. And I, I may be a little bit cynical about that, but um, you know, when people start to talk about even words like recalibration or modernization, that's a, a veiled threat in people's minds, I think, mm-hmm. if they're not confident in their, um, what they're actually service they're delivering. You know, I think for the people mm-hmm. that are really confident in their organization or what they're actually doing, they're like, yeah, no, I'm all for that. Or if you're willing um, to lose your job, you know, yes. you hear that a lot. It's like, the goal of your organization is for you not to have a job. That should be everybody's goal. Mm-hmm. But I think the, I think the uh, the reverse is is oftentimes true. Which you know, again, to criticize somebody for you know worrying about losing their job is is a little yeah. bit trite because people yeah. have lives yeah. that they have to sustain. Yeah, is I wonder second- if yeah, if a better goal isn't to just have like the the best, like if you're in business of providing service, why don't you just say like, I, I want to be the best at this service. Like, yes, yes. I want to be the best in Canada. I want to be the best. In yeah. The I want to be the best. At- yeah. Like there's better goals than this. Cause it's a fake goal because nobody mm-hmm. does that. If they go out of business, it's cause like they fucked up or right. like, you know, government cut their funding or COVID happened and they couldn't sustain operations. Like it, I've never, I've not met anybody who has succeeded out of that so i'm not sure it's a realistic thing to aspire to as a sector mm-hmm. the second action for consideration is around collaboration and um, collaboration is a word that's been used ad nauseum and i think again some of the challenges are at the ministerial level around there's institutional path dependency around how funding is deployed between ministries. Mm-hmm. And so I think, mm-hmm. you know, when I, when I continue to look at this document, I see it as if, if, if you or somebody wanted to use it as a advocacy 
a tool and maybe that's not help seekers help seeker mandate and we can i'd like to talk about that a little bit um it starts at the ministerial level because as you said 80 percent of the funding or the, the big bulk of funding and the way in which funding is deployed and then reported on is it doesn't incentivize collaboration and so um, i think the city could play a role in encouraging that through you know even their funding mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. pockets mm -hmm. of funding and show leadership that way how, how mm -hmm. do you how does that how does that sit with you oh yeah uh, hard to hard to argue with with okay. that okay <laughs> okay uh, number number three you, you talk about creating a community well-being and recovery strategy and you i'm interested why you chose the word recovery um Good. was that Good. was that Two was things. that an intent? Was that an yeah. intentional political yes. uh, word? Hundred percent. Okay. Two two reasons, and it's in the report too. One, there's this. Um, I don't want to say jockeying, but there's this push and pull around harm reduction in the province. Harm right now. reduction versus recovery is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thing. However, having again having worked in in. Uh, the addiction sector for with sobriety focused organizations like the dream center mm -hmm. like jim moore is mm -hmm. like one of my long-standing mentors um he's the ceo of the dream center in calgary um i don't see this as this you know yeah, this it's conflict bizarre. it's bizarre and it's doing it's, it's not doing good things right now mm -hmm. so it's <laughs> it's doing harm because we're not finding a middle ground. And, mm -hmm. and I, and I think it's like people are so polarized on it that we're not seeing this as a continuum. Mm -hmm. um, and that's unfortunate because I, I mean, I, I've had conversations with, with the dream center and harm reduction that they're doing within a sobriety context. And I've seen alpha house, which is another organization that's near and dear to, to my work. And that is a harm reduction organization. If I've ever seen one, that is doing um, talking about sobriety based options. So I think the like the magic word is options, really, and and mm -hmm. choice. And I, I, you know, again, imposing one or the other, either one, right? Imposing one or the other is is the challenge. I think it's it's having the right options in the and having them accessible and and meeting people where where they're at. And you know what? Lots of people are, are wanting that sobriety stuff. I've seen it. I've funded it myself. At the Homeless Foundation, we funded the entire spectrum. So it's, I really don't know why it has become so polarizing. No, that's not true. I know exactly why it's become so polarizing. It's because of these, these um, effects on, on downtown businesses and especially in, in cities where they've had rises in uh, and the fentanyl impacts and the meth impacts in community mm -hmm. and those are real too so i i think it's this it, it's unfortunate um i see why it happened in alberta i just don't know if it's productive to uh maybe that's maybe that's it i understand both sides really really well i don't know if it's productive to keep sitting in the in the two opposing corners i don't know if it's productive no. for importance no, it's not, it's not productive. I think it's also in part ideological around, you know, some people just traditionally don't think that providing drugs to a drug user is ethical. And mm -hmm. um, the, the opposite side would say, 
well, that person's going to die if you don't. Exactly. And so, and so there's the ideological piece that goes along with it. And that exactly. plays into all sorts of um, religious ideologies or political ideologies or generational mm-hmm. um, paradigms that have been brought down by your parents. But, you know, I would agree with you. It's actually, I think it's simpler than people make this to be really um, this, this battle. However, you know, prevention, treatment, um, and recovery, harm reduction, like it's, it's this continuum of care that you meet people where you're at, as you say, and it's, it's not that it's not as, as controversial as I think people, but it it's also quite a emo- Yeah. It's also it quite a, emo- well, yeah, it didn't need to be. Mm-hmm. It's also Sorry, quite emotional. I th- no, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's just quite emotional also for the families who have lost loved ones. Um, and this year more than ever at such a exactly. alarming rate, rate. So it's, um, it's yeah, quite no. And I, I mean, I mentioned this to you too. Like I, I lost my brother to fentanyl last year. Like I fucking understand this. I understand it. I understand addiction. Um, and I understand we need choices and my brother had sober times and he had, and he could have really used, you know, that harm mm-hmm. reduction when he passed yes. away, he could have really used yes. it then. And he might've had a chance at sobriety again, but I, I totally understand it. I really, uh, yeah, I understand the, the conflict in it. And I just, yeah, I'm just hopeful that, that we can get from our corners and meet, meet somewhere in the middle on this because, mm-hmm. cause it's not, it's not like we're crushing it right now. It's not like yeah. we're <laughs> yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, I think we can do better. I agree. I agree. On, on, and, and again, I also think that there's no, there's no there's no room or need for for judgment or or criticism of individuals or organizations. It's just that you know I think we can all have a if we use data and um, evidence um, to guide our decision making processes. Um, and then if there's a debate about the data or the evidence, then you can have that debate. But at the end of the day, we should go with the best available information. And that's why like the work you're doing, um, using data, using machine learning, like that, this is the future of decision-making for major corporations, the future decision-making for um, governments in other, other areas. And so why shouldn't it be the future of decision-making for the social sector? I think mm-hmm. we're, we're, tw- we're 20 years behind, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and the demand is as high as it's ever been. And so, you know, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to go through the next uh, six recommendations because I think really at the crux of it, number one and two really um dial that in but you did talk about um in one of your presentations that i watched you know the five trends to watch mm. in the future around, around tech and so maybe you know just as, yeah. a, as a closing uh sure. piece, i found that quite interesting you could just share at a high level um, what do you think that is for the social sector because i think it's important for people to to recognize yeah. those yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to remember all five of them off the top of my head, even though <laughs> that was not that long ago. Um, <laughs> but, 
Um, but I will, I will kind of touch on, on a couple that are, have, I've been mulling. I, I, I can help. I can help you out. You can help? Okay. Well, I know talk which about, one digital ID. Talk about digital identity first. Sure. And what that means and, and yeah. why we don't have it in the social sector. Well, so it, it's, it's a really good one. Once again, um, we're just like, just kind of stuck on, stuck on paper in some ways in the mm -hmm. sector. So digital ID is you as Albertan listeners probably have this already. If you've done any booking online for government's government documentation or um, license or anything like that, it's called Maddie, my Alberta digital identity. So in a way, like it's already here is just that we haven't really done a much work on leveraging it in the mm -hmm. social sector, but it's the future. So it's essentially your digital you know, wallet, if you will, your your identity out there, but it's it's tied to personal information, but it's within your control. So for instance, I would be able to, you know, the same way that I go to Starbucks, grab my whatever I'm I'm happen to be into that day, and I use my phone to access my digital wallet that's tied to my digital identity to make a payment. Same way, you know, I could um, receive a counseling session or mm -hmm. um, a benefit or a, a monetary benefit, a financial benefit or a tax uh, benefit because I'm low income. And that would just mm -hmm. be come digitized instead of me, again, dropping in everywhere, filling out the forms. It would just be an, kind of an automated digital experience instead of doing the runaround stuff. Mm -hmm. So that's happening. Um, we're for sure going to be active in that space. And we've got lots of work in the pipeline to use the, the front facing app um, that helps mm -hmm. secret develop to um, enable people who want that because lots of people still want to do the anonymous thing. And right. that's, right. we need to be able to really like continue that. That's a huge deal for people. Um, but for those that are like, you know what, I'm ready to, you know, apply for this treatment bed, or I'm ready for, or I think I'm eligible for this benefit. Oh, shit, I am eligible because my mm -hmm. I don't need to call a billion places. It's done automatically for me. It's telling me every, right. everything I should be getting and it's filling out my forms. So I don't need to be super savvy on filling out forms because the right. computer. So that is a huge, huge thing. You know, the, the time saved for staff filling out form like if you look at what a social worker's job description is today um you know it's stuff like navigating systems helping uh -huh. people figure out forms uh find okay. helping people find help right. guess what yeah. <laughs> if we can take that off the plate you could do the actual shit that you signed up for which is mm -hmm. changing the world mm -hmm. for the better not paperwork yes and Googling all day, like so many, so many people that we talk to when we develop our tech stuff, they, they'll say like, you know, how do you spend your day? Well, I just sit in my computer and I Google where to send people. So I'm like, so oh, wow. people come in and then you Google where to send them next. I'm like, yeah, it's the shuffle. Wow. It's the yeah. shuffle. And like, that's not why people went into this shit, no, no. you know? And I'm like, and it's fun. I'm talking about the frontline people. Like we always talk yeah, about the yeah. sector. What we talk, what you and I talk about are probably like the CEO, upper, mm -hmm. upper management. Mm -hmm. But like there's this whole, you know, cadre of frontline folks. Sorry about this. One sec. That's all right.
Yeah, you're saying there's this whole cadre of people who- um... The front line, the people that are actually carrying the sector, like doing the, the heavy lifting on the ground that you know are the ones going into encampments to deliver you know supplies the ones that are cleaning the shelter beds when people leave the ones that are serving meals the ones that are you know cleaning up the puke after somebody detoxes like mm-hmm. that's that's the sector and we sometimes mm-hmm. don't talk to that yes uh, yes the majority which is the majority of, of folks yes not not the ones that are that are uh, making all the the calls at the executive level who are also well, important but not everybody the one I found interesting is always getting funding requests for systems navigators. Um, just, you know, speaking to how complicated the system is, you need a person to help people navigate the system. The second, the second one you mentioned was um, artificial intelligence or machine learning to predict future mm-hmm. social, social issues, mm-hmm. um, which I find quite, quite interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is that something that help seekers going to be involved in moving forward? Definitely, definitely. And and already are. So we, um, we partnered with another company out of Alberta. Um, They're not a B Corp, but they're, they're, they're still cool. (laughs) So Alta ML, and they specialize in, they're more generalists. Like they don't have like a, you know, a niche We're we're on the social side, but they kind of do everything. And so this was when we didn't have a machine learning team and we, uh, partner with them when we were getting our feet wet into this. And um, as part of that, uh, we uh, developed an algorithm that we're now actually going to launch into the real world to simulate suicide, homelessness, and domestic violence rates. And and as a result of COVID, what is that going to mean in two years, for instance? And and so we know, like, we know what it's going to be again, will the world be ready? Like, will that change how somebody funds? If you right. know that, and you as a funder, right. like if, if I told you like Calgary is going to have this many and Edmonton's going to have this many suicides, what would that, you know, what would you do about it? You know, um, yeah, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a difficult question in and of itself. And so maybe that yeah. says, uh, I, as a funder, am not ready to, um, maybe I, maybe I'm behind <laughs> um, <laughs> number three it's uh, when it, yeah it's different yeah when it's stereo. yeah but that's that's a serious question although ser- to use this example of suicide i just find to be such a complex um problem to 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 solve even if you mm-hmm. even if you had that information anyways that's that's mm-hmm. way too in the weeds mm-hmm. uh mm-hmm. digital social services experiences so talk a little bit about yeah that how you see that as a trend in terms of the social sector? Yeah, well, again, COVID, better or worse, we're all digital now. This is normal, this experience Mm -hmm. online. Um, I mean, I get a bunch of stuff digitally now, um, including my my coaching and counseling and that kind of shit. So, Mm -hmm. well, I mean, that's just kind of an obvious, (laughs) it's just really obvious. I think people are, are wanting, are wanting that. And the mobility thing, the, anyways, there's a whole bunch of reasons why this is, has to be an option. Um, we're again, it's a, a bit of a, it was a definitely a different discussion before COVID, but now people are like, yeah, that that totally makes sense as service mm-hmm. providers, not as clients. I think clients are like, yeah, that, that makes sense. Like, um, 
there, there was already movement towards that. Like for instance, I did uh, lots of evaluations of youth programs and youth workers are often like way savvier because they're, they're younger too. They're, right. they're cooler. And they're like, yeah, no, I, I do my shit by text. <laughs> like, so I'm like, what does supporting somebody look like texting, right? Or uh, just, you know, meets or whatever. So um, I think it's more that that is, is just becoming entrenched. And so the question becomes, how do we make that an even better experience? So exactly, it's not, yes. not clunky, right? So how yes. do we, for instance, um, move the client through the service journey without needing us to hold their hand if they don't want mm -hmm. us to hold their hand? Mm -hmm. So can that, can that be a, a choose your own adventure situation? Now, somebody will say, well, you know, somebody that's super vulnerable, da, 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 da. I'm like, no, I'm not talking about the 1%. I'm talking about the 10% of the population mm -hmm. that will experience some type of a social challenge that are, you know, are going to be okay with that. And I, we're seeing it in, in medicine as well. It's just in the social sector. We, we haven't really done too much work in, in that space. So things like service blueprints and smart uh, prompts, things like that are, are mm -hmm. definitely going to be here to stay uh, for sure. Yeah. And I think the experience part, and I'll just speak about the mental health. So, mm -hmm. you know, for decades, people talked about virtual, um, virtual mental health care and, and virtual psychotherapy or seen a psychiatrist. And they're all, they were so hesitant to do it mm -hmm. for whatever, whatever number of reasons. And then COVID came and everybody was forced to go online and like, Oh yeah, this is not complicated at all. It's super easy. Yeah. It's way, it's way more accessible for the client. Yeah. Um, the stigma is reduced because you don't have to walk either through yeah. the hospital into the psychiatry unit or into a strip mall and see a, mm -hmm. a, a therapist. And so, mm -hmm. you know, innov innovation sometimes is forced upon you and it's mm -hmm. some, of the, some mm -hmm. of the results of COVID have been really those mm -hmm. have been good byproducts, but I would agree that the experience um, that's where the winners and losers are going to come into play yeah. because yeah. more and more, I think people are going to demand uh, yeah. a better experience than the one I'm providing you right now on zoom, for example, you know, like not that you haven't thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. However, if there was a, you know, if there was more of a, a better user experience um, than me screwing up the uh, front end of my pod squad cast and blah, blah, blah. Anyways, that's going to be all these things like these micro processes, these uh, reducing friction points. We're going to get into much more of these service design principles and human centered design principles in, mm -hmm. in the digital era. So I think that will also change the physical experience as well, because the way that you need to pattern your uh, UX, UI, like if you actually do a good job of that, you're going to be think you can't unsee it in the in your mm -hmm. Right. in the real world i see yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, that's a really good that's a really interesting point that's a really good point uh the fourth trend you're talking about is um low complexity information um so maybe just talk about the you know the thing i, I don't think this is totally relatable but I, the, the fact that um physicians are still faxing um using fax all the time is just to me like the most asinine thing probably in all of medicine but anyways low complexity information. What do you mean by that? Uh, what did I mean by that? <laughs> Tell me what else I said in there. Well, I, I, that's all I have written down, but I think what you, oh. you were talking about <laughs> was that, you know, what, what you're, what you were referring to is like, instead of having to write 
a hundred page report for oh, a grant that you received yes. for fifty thousand yes. um, dollars. Yeah. Oh, I know what you. Yeah. Strip that yeah. down. Oh yeah. So I mean, the the big story here, and remember uh, at the beginning we were talking about consulting as that as and the cottage cottage industry mm -hmm. in some sense, but it's also a huge business, like the big, the big consulting firms out there that, you know, yes. have the big contracts with government, for instance, they're huge contracts. So it's actually a humongous, um, humongous industry, but the way, and I, I can tell you this, cause just, I was a consultant, the way you create value is by producing these giant reports. And so, you know, tell me about poverty in Edmonton. Okay. Mm -hmm. Well, that's going to be a hundred thousand dollars. That's going to be, you know, a year of work, blah, 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 blah. Um, but the gist is poverty is going up and it's going up disproportionately in this population, this population in this neighborhood. And comparatively to the rest of the country, you're actually not doing too bad. Like that's the gist. Right. Right. Yeah. I'm yeah. That up. That's not, that's not Edmonton, but I'm, I'm making that up. I'm like, so like, do we really need the, do we need the te big technical report? Maybe we do. Maybe we, it's part of the culture that you need to slap some shit down on the table and be like, I did my homework. Right. Mm -hmm. But I think that's, that's changing too, because mm -hmm. we're in a I situation so. where, uh, well, I hope so too, because I'm like, A, I'm sick of reading them and B, I'm sick of writing them. And um, they're also all the same, generally speaking. And sick of cutting and pasting and modifying, right? Yes, so yes. like people, people are not going to tolerate this. I hope they're not going to tolerate this mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, I'm always like asked, okay, but Alina, like, just give us a gist. And I, I can like, okay, well, why didn't I just give you the gist to begin with? Right. <laughs> and did you need a year? And did you need a hundred thousand dollars? I'm like, what if this was $10,000 and it was all mm -hmm. automated for you and you could have it tomorrow. What would you say uh -huh. to that? And people are at first they're like, no, no, I I, I have to spend a hundred thousand dollars because it's not real if it's if it's not expensive. Right. Yes, like, yes, it's no, not no, no, the no, value. It's yeah. they think right. They they just it's disruption. It's the same same old story that way. But that's what we're doing too. Is like okay, how can we how can we think differently about all this stuff? Because again, what what we're seeing now is like. You go from one fucking report to the next report and you don't do anything in between because all you're doing right. is moving from this needs assessment to the strategic plan from that one. It's like, oh shit, my needs assessment is old. I better do that one again. So then you're just like, it's the rut. It's this bureaucratic rut. Well, consultants are good because they got a, they got a good thing yeah. going on, but like we're not implementing the action plan because it's out of date. Oh, right, right. <laughs> better, better put out an RFP, you know, yeah. better, better secure a consultant. So we're like, if we did the small thing, it's not small because, you know, we're all pulling our hair out how to do this. But um, what if that was no longer a thing? Like, what if right. mm -hmm. that you can like, what are you going to do? And somebody, uh, somebody that we were testing this with and that's a policymaker is like, well, that's my job. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. But just like the social worker didn't that didn't go into this to Google shit to pass people mm -hmm. to, same way you as a policymaker didn't go into this to fucking write RFPs for needs assessments and action plans right. that you never get to implement. I'm like, you went in to make the world a better place. If you now have the time to do that, what would your work look like? Yes. And that's an interesting conversation. Yes. I don't know. We and have an answer, yeah. but yeah, but maybe they can reimagine their future as well. The last mm -hmm. thing you talked about is trends, which we, I think, began with is around data analysis and visualization. And so mm -hmm. um, 
Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously that's at the crux of the work you're doing right mm -hmm. now. So, so maybe I'll end with just one question. Um, hmm. What is your aspirations for the future for, for your company in terms of scale and spread? Because it seems to me uh, you've been at this for under five years and three, yeah, three, three years. Yeah. Um, and you've had, um, I mean, from an outsider looking in phenomenal success and, um, have found a niche, I think, you know, you're kind of the first mover, uh, and maybe there's other movers outside of in Canada and the United States, but where do you see this going in the next five to 10 years for you? Yeah, we get, we get asked that, believe it or not, by new staff or people that we're trying to lure into mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And we're always like, well, honestly, we thought we were doing an app. So I don't really right. know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, like, pretty honest about it. Um, we, we know where the tech innovation is going for sure. Like we've got that really well mapped out and it's, all those trends that that you referenced are we're digging into in in the development side for sure. So the machine learning, the automation of um, of some of these insights, the you know the service and system blueprints, and ensuring mm -hmm. that best practices are at your fingertips. You don't have to again hire somebody to tell you a best practice. There's there's another niche industry right there. So all of that is for sure happening. The digital identity and the ability for uh, end users to control their user journey that's so that's part and parcel mm -hmm. of of for sure the next um 12 to 16 18 months for for us from a business perspective we're 53 people we started with travis like i said a, a year uh, in the first year um three years wow. ago so it's it's been incredible and for it to be bootstrapped has been really well, i was gonna cool. say no investment dollars and you no. scale to one to 50 staff in three years. That's, uh, that's incredible. It's, it's been so, awesome. Despite all this, you know, non-fans that we have. It's, well, you, you know what, that's, that comes okay. with the territory though, you know, and I think you should take that as a mark of, of pride instead of a mark of, you know, insecurity or whatever, because, you know, people always talk about also motivating, right? Like you're like, oh. oh yeah. But people use <laughs> okay. the word, people were use the word um, transformation and innovation and disruption as though, but they don't ever, they always use them as sexy words or words that are like, you know, that's what I'm going to do when I come into X organization but you also have to really understand what that means. And it has mm -hmm. um, repercussions for individuals in their lives. Um, and not to say you're trying to do that for that reason, you're trying to do that to better society and humanity. And that's at the macro yes. level. But when you go yes. down to the micro level, that's where you get your, your haters because it's a threat, but people have to understand that um, the, the, the goal or the outcome has nothing to do with the macro level. It has to do with the people that we serve. And so um, anyways, yeah. that's why. No, you said it, you said it. The the disruption label is is like a byproduct of just how, how we are felt by some mm -hmm. segments. It's not the purpose of why we exist, right? Exactly. The, this is the purpose. Um, and the mission is the mission. And and all, all of that is, really, I feel really solid. I think our team is 
kick ass. Like we've got a really diverse team. Um, they're all of the same mindset. Like I think the the social change part is part of why they're they're all here because it's not mm-hmm. easy work. They could all be doing something way um, easier than a social tech startup because mm-hmm. social tech is not really a thing. Again, right. we're making shit up. So um, so I think there's there's a future in in social technology. I really hope Alberta gets its shit together to keep companies like us here. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause I, I don't know, especially Calgary, like it's not really been the best place to start a social tech business. I don't know about other mm-hmm. tech businesses. I'm, I'm, I can't speak for them. Um, we have had way more success outside of Alberta than, than in Alberta mm-hmm. um, or in, outside of Calgary in particular, like Calgary is like mm-hmm. really not, I don't know. They just, maybe they don't, get what we're doing. We've probably done a shitty job explaining ourselves. Um, I think it's getting a little bit better, but that's okay too, right? Like you almost have to like show that, that you've got value somewhere else before your own hometown kind of gets like, Oh, this is, this is real. Mm -hmm. You know, (laughs) maybe, maybe we should uh, pay attention to it, but that's, again, you're not, you're not doing it for, for those reasons. It's annoying when you're, it gets in the way of, you know, getting into the, um, the adoption part and, and all those things when it gets into the, the way of, of your company goals. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, in and of itself, it's not a big deal. I wanted to cover this too. So I said last question, but this would be last question around the advocacy piece. Yeah. Um, do you see that being part of your, a piece of your mission um, intentionally? Because I mean, this document that you did for mm-hmm. Edmonton police, I mean, it's, it's an implicit, mm-hmm. it's implicit advocacy, right? It's not as though you're explicitly saying, but you're doing it, you know, you're asked to produce a report, so you produce a report, but you yeah. could take that document or somebody could take that document and use it as a tool for advocacy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How do you think about that? Um, I think it's just like any other um, data point or report in the public sphere, you gotta, you have to, you have to put it out there with, with the knowledge that it's gonna, it's gonna have legs that, that you may not be, uh, the body for. So, so you better write it. So you better write exactly what you mean so that, you know, the interpretation and, and the leveraging of it for political stuff is gonna happen. It happens like I've written so many reports that get spun in different, uh, by different stakeholder groups for different reasons. It's, it's part of this mm-hmm. phase. Anytime you get into, into um, um, issues like this, you're, you have that, like, it's just part of the game. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's, not, yeah. it's not optional, if you will. So you better write exactly what you stand behind. So that report, we stand behind hundred mm-hmm. percent. Now, there's also a bunch of caveats in that report to say, for instance, like right. that's actually not all the money. We know that there's a bunch of shit missing. Like we tried our best to get, for instance, that we were only able to get the charitable dollars and some of the nonprofit dollars. But as people know, in Alberta, we have as many nonprofits as we do charities. So does that mean that number is double? Like, I, hope, I mean, I hope not. I hope we didn't miss that much of it, but there's these huge caveats on it too. But again, for, for what we knew and the task at hand that is, that is what it is. And, and the recommendations I'm like, yeah, those are, you read my words. I 
personally wrote those. So I'm, mm. I'm, that's what I, what I believe. And that's what, that's what we think. At least we've got some different opinions on tweaks and things like that internally, but um, overall that's, yeah, we're good. We're good with where it stands, how it gets played out and whether people do it. Most of my recommendations, they kind of, nobody does them. So <laughs> I've, I've learned it's the, the more the danger is to be ignored really not mm, mm. people are actually going to do any of those things even if they do one well, percent well i think the the work you're doing is very very important and fascinating and i congratulate you on your your success and um your persistence and um trying to to change the social sector for the good so thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. thanks it was a lo lovely conversation Thank you. And uh, feel free to edit as you please. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Nice right. to meet you. Thank you, you so much. Likewise. Take care. Bye. Bye.